Sexual pleasure is something invented and created by God. Now, how we experience it today is not necessarily the same thing. But what does God say? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Hembert. I'm Janice. This is Bible Discovery. As we are discovering the Bible, we will learn from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 what God says. And this is really important for us to listen to today. So let's get ready to do that. We'll talk about it in about three minutes time. So it's really, really interesting. Corey? Well, today I'm taking a look at salt. It was a practical, it still is a practical reality in the world, but there's a lot that the Bible has to say about it. Ryan? In today's report, I want to focus on Paul's analogy of an Olympian competing for a crown in 1 Corinthians 9.25, which he also alludes to in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. Look forward to that, Ryan. Okay, very good. Janice? Today, my segment's called God's Word. All right, let's open up the Bible guide, look at 1 Corinthians 7, and listen to what God says. First Corinthians 7, 1 through 9. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. For I wish that all men were even as I myself. But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. You know, 1 Corinthians 7, 8, and 9 is absolutely amazing, as the whole book is, but this is really something. Human sexuality is both a great blessing and a great curse. We can be so easily be led astray by the promise of sexual gratification. Sex itself should not be seen as an evil. God designed us as sexual creatures, and therefore this is a gift. However, God designed sex to be enjoyed only within the marriage relationship between a man and a woman. The Bible is clear with it and says that God created man and woman to be one. His design was one man with one woman for life. This is illustrated by his creation of Adam and Eve, and it was reinforced by Jesus Christ when he walked on this earth. Now, the problem comes when we reject God as creator. Without God, 
our purposeful and compassionate creator, we have no reason to follow the sexual constraints of Christianity. Without God as morality and moral authority, we must decide what is right and wrong. We become our own decision makers in this area. It's been proven time and time again that we will choose temporary fulfillment and follow our feelings. When we believe that God is real and that we are his creation, our thinking should change. It becomes less about what fulfills us in the moment and more about what fulfills in the long run. It becomes less selfish and more about what's best. Paul spoke about all of this to the Corinthian church, who, like us, were living in a very sexualized society. And I'll tell you something, there will be people watching right now who do not agree, and I'm just telling you, all we're doing is teaching the Word of God. We're teaching the Bible. And the Bible is what we believe, and that's what we teach. So, take your Bible guide and turn to today's passage. And when you uh, don't have a Bible guide because uh, you haven't asked for one, I would say, why not ask for one? We'll send it to you. Call us or write to us or go to BibleDiscoveryTV.com and click on the page, and it will take you to a donate page where you can download it as we printed it. So we encourage you to join the Bible and or the Bible guide, and the Bible guide takes you through the Bible, God's wonderful word. The 66 books written by the 40 authors over 1,500 years, all with the same theme, Jesus Christ, Yeshua, Yeshua HaMashiach. Very, very important. Father, I pray today, as we take on and deal with this subject, uh, I, I'm not going to focus on where everybody's at, because everybody's in different places. But I'm going to focus on what you told us, and help us, Father, today. And help the people to see this is your word. This is not, you know, some opinion that I would like to uh, adopt as my own, but this is your word. Help us to see that today, in the name of Jesus Christ. And we said together, Amen and amen. Let's read the word of God. Let's hear it. Let's understand it. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 to 3. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, Paul says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband Render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. Husband and wife, wife and husband. Paul explains that sexual pleasure is reserved for marriage, biblical marriage. As Christians, we should focus on God's design and not our own fleshly desires. Very important to remember that. Now, when we talk about this, we're going to be talking about this from the standpoint of the Bible. And I teach the Bible because I believe the Bible is the word of God. That's what I teach. Very interesting, isn't it? Because there will be a lot of people grabbing a hold of things and saying, well, that's not what our law says. Well, our laws say a lot of things. But the Bible tells the Christians, those who follow Jesus Christ, how to live. Interesting, isn't it? All right, let's go to 1 Corinthians 7, verse 4. The wife, this is really something. Okay, let's read this. The Bible, 7, 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body. 
The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Now, we're not done yet. Gentlemen, read this. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body. The wife does. The authority of our own body does not belong to us, but to our spouse. <laughs> the Bible proclaims a very different attitude towards sexual experience than this world and our governments. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Never thought that was in the Bible, did you? 7 verse 4. There it is. Paul talks to us and speaks in a way that we need to understand it. Now, it's interesting because as we think that through, there are challenges here for the Christian, for the believers in Jesus Christ. Now, let's go back to the scripture and then we'll talk more about that in a moment. 1 Corinthians 7 verses 5 through 9. Here's what the Bible says. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourself to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. For I wish that all men were even as I myself. But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, then let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. There may be times that we confine our sexual expression to marriage in mutual consent for a time. All right? As Christians, we are married under the authority of God. He is our one and great desire. I like talking about this because as we read the Bible and we understand it, we realize that it's not about our self-gratification. We say, Lord, this is your word. This is the center of my life, your will and your word. Help me to understand that. And then everything else comes. God first, then our spouses and family, and then everything else that we do, our work and our play and everything else. God first, then our spouses and family, and then everything else we do. Very important. Those priority structures in the last 40 years have been totally wrecked by this world. But that's what God said in his word. Now, let me ask this question. As Christians, do we do that? Have we done that? Lord, help us today to make you first in our life. Second, our spouses and our family. And then Lord, everything else after. Hi, Rod Hembry. We go through the Bible in one year. It's exciting. It's great. And you can join us by searching Bible Discovery TV on your phone. That's right, on your phone, your iPhone or your Android phone. And when you do so, you'll find the app. You can download the app and watch it anytime you want. Never miss a program right here on Bible Discovery TV. We'll see you there.
Okay, so my focus today is on both 1 Corinthians 9.25 and 2 Timothy 2.5. In taking these passages together, we see how Paul compares a Christian's spiritual journey to that of an athlete competing to win the prize. And Paul's point is very well taken. We should have the same dedication to our spiritual race as an Olympic runner has to his, so that we too may win the prize. But unlike an Olympian's crown which will pass away, the Christian's crown is eternal. Now with that being said, let's dig into the text and the culture a little bit more here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 and 25, the Apostle Paul compares a Christian spiritual walk or race to that of a runner. And he says to the Corinthians, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. The apostle here is almost certainly alluding to the ancient games of the Greeks, of which there were four. The two most celebrated of these, however, were the Olympic and the Isthmian, of which the Olympic took precedence. Interestingly, it was Corinth that hosted the Isthmian Games every two years, and it occurred at least once during Paul's stay. Thus, to make his point to these Corinthian believers, Paul used imagery that as residents of Corinth, they would have understood very well. As they full well knew, runners who wanted to compete in these games had to go into very strict training and had to exercise great self-control as they trained. As a matter of fact, athletes who competed in the games in Olympia had to swear an oath confirming that they had abstained from wine, meat, and sexual intercourse in the previous ten months. The first century Greek philosopher Epictetus beautifully illustrates the rigors of such training. Would you be a victor in the Olympic games, he asked. So in good truth would I, for it is a glorious thing. But pray consider what must go before, and what may follow and so proceed to the attempt. You must then live by rule, eat what will be disagreeable, refrain from delicacies. You must oblige yourself to constant exercises at the appointed hour in heat and cold. You must abstain from wine and cold liquors. In a word, you must be as submissive to all the directions of your master as to those of a physician. This is the level of commitment that Paul expects both of himself and other Christians in their spiritual race, in order that we too may receive the victor's crown, which will be of much greater glory than the Greek crowns, which were nothing more than chaplets of leaves. Indeed, the Olympic crown was made of the leaves of the wild olive, while the Isthmian crown was made of pine or withered celery. Since the earliest of times, such chaplets were bestowed upon great conquerors of the battlefield. Thus the psalmist declares of the triumphant Messiah in Psalm 132.18, Upon himself shall his crown flourish. The idea of a crown flourishing is very expressive when spoken of a leafy chaplet. Actually, the crown of thorns which was placed on the Savior's head was a mockery of these wreaths of triumph, as well as of the golden crowns of kings. Nevertheless, Paul's point is that just as an Olympian runs with the purpose of winning the prize, which is perishable, we also need to run with the goal of winning the heavenly crown, which is imperishable. You know, Paul's message is a real challenge for a lot of us, isn't it? 
Oftentimes we want to get saved and then just sit back and relax and maybe even go on sinning and living the way that we want to live. But Paul exhorts us to commit wholeheartedly to the faith, denying ourselves things that would hurt that cause, just as an Olympian commits wholeheartedly to winning the gold, even if it means subjecting him or herself to intense and unpleasant training. And if an Olympian disciplines him or herself in order to win an award, which will pass away, how much more should we discipline ourselves in order that we may win an award that will never pass away? Important lessons from the Apostle Paul. One of the things that's challenging for me is that John chapter 15, he says the father takes the vine and if you bear fruit, I want to say at this point, oh, go on vacation and take it easy. But if you bear fruit, he prunes you mm-hmm. <laughs> so that you will bear more fruit. That's right. So, and it's not pleasant. Usually. It's not, <laughs> yeah. but, but, it's, but it's good. It's valuable. Yes. So by, by the end of your life, you become that much more powerful in the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. That's very important. Thank you, Ryan. Corey? All right. Well, I'm speaking about something that is also valuable both today and in the ancient world. We're going to be taking a look at salt because whether it's the Old Testament talking about adding salt to Israel's offerings to God or whether it's in Second Chronicles where uh, the author talks about how God has made a covenant of salt with David and his descendants uh, for them to be on the throne, whether it's Jesus saying to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth, or even whether it's just practically looking at the Roman Empire and the tremendous value, the, the actual monetary value of salt. Salt is a, just a really interesting commodity to kind of dig into. So that's what we're going to do right now. It's a commonly known truth in ancient Near Eastern studies that salt was an important staple of everyday life. Salt enhances the flavor of food, increasing the enjoyment of the meal, and it had many other practical uses. Salt enabled the preservation of fish and other meats, as well as fruits and vegetables, making it an invaluable tool of survival. It was used in the production of cheese, in the processing of leather, the glazing of bricks and ceramics, textile dyeing, medicine, and cosmetics. Salt had religious significance, including as an important addition to the sacrificial offerings of Israel. It was also used as an offensive weapon in warfare. After a conquering army had taken territory or destroyed a city, if they wanted to really drive home the destruction, they would sow the city and surrounding fields with salt. Symbolically, this preserved its destruction. Physically, it made the fields inhospitable to crops, making rebuilding an unlikely, or at least a very difficult, affair. Because of all these uses, salt was a prized commodity, and the fact that it's long-lasting and easy to store accounts for its famous use as payment to soldiers in the Roman period. In biblical Israel, it has recently been proven that salt production and harvesting happened along Israel's northern Mediterranean coast and not just in the more obvious Dead Sea region. There were several steps and environmental factors needed to harvest sea salt. First, the source of the salt, in this case the Mediterranean Sea, watertight evaporating pans for the water to settle and evaporate in, leaving behind the crystallized salt, and weather that was hot and dry for long enough to facilitate large-scale evaporation. Today, the visible remains of 28 ancient salt works have been explored. They consist of rock-cut channels, wells, and large evaporating pans that are located around modern Haifa. 
Due to their reuse throughout the ages, it's impossible to know for sure how old they are, although researchers are confident that they were in use from at least the 2nd century BC to the 13th century AD. To harvest salt from the sea, water first has to be collected. This was done in a few ways depending on the topography of the seashore. A lifting slope could be carved in a rocky shoreline, or a channel could be cut or created that would utilize wave energy to move the water in towards the pan or a well. If the water was collected in a well, it would need to be lifted out and directed toward the evaporating pan which itself was a large, shallow pool either naturally occurring or carved in the ground. Animals with a bucket and pulley system, or a chain and bucket system, were often used to lift seawater out of the wells and into conveying channels. Once in the evaporating pans, the seawater was left to evaporate. The salt would then be harvested by hand, stacked in piles, and collected for distribution. There we go. So like with a lot of the segments that we do here, because we have limited time, there's much more that can be said about this, but I hope this gives you uh, an, 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 you know, just a window into the ancient world, how salt was produced in certain areas of the world, the, the remnants of it, and some of the, you know, significance of, of why the Bible and how the Bible uses salt as an image for us. That's really important. And this program is all about the Bible, discovering the Bible, learning the Bible. And next year we do the Bible guide again with brand new material. You've seen the, the cover pictures for all of the things going on. It's new material. We're very excited about it. So make sure you get on the Bible guide list. It's important to do that. Very, very good. Okay, Janice. Well, I, I appreciate your segment today, Ryan, and also your segment today, Corey. And I wanted to talk about God's Word, you know, as a whole. And this, this program is called Bible Discovery because we are going through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, so that um, at the end of the year, we're at Revelation chapter 22 at the end, at the end of the Bible, and we've read the whole thing through. There are going to be sections in that that are going to be more difficult for us to understand. And uh, we are not perfect people and we are not going to get it right 100% of the time either. That is why we are discovering God's word together with the help of God's Holy Spirit as we read the Bible. And I would encourage you that before you begin to read your Bible at whatever point of the day or night that is, that you would first pause and ask God to help you to be able to read and understand and that the Holy Spirit would be able to help and teach you um, to really open up your heart and your mind to understand what his word is saying to you. Bible studies are also another wonderful way to gather together with people who believe the same way that you do or that, that read the Bible, that you can read the word together and iron sharpens iron, doesn't it, Rod? It does. And that's the same. We, we come to this program and we challenge you. And I find today that this particular chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the principles of marriage, keeping your marriage vows, talking about living as you're called, and then also Paul begins to refer to the unmarried and widows. There are sections in the Bible which really, really can challenge us today where we are in our culture. And it seems that the farther we're going along in time and the farther that we, we get um, more news feeds from all over the place, our world has become a much smaller place, hasn't it? But it, it seems as though we are 
more opinionated as people, and we want to tend to believe that the Bible is an old and irrelevant book that somehow God has changed, and that His Word can kind of morph with the culture. And that I want to say personally, and I believe I can say that for the rest of the team sitting here, is the wrong way to approach God's Word. God's Word is not going to shift and change because the culture shifts and changes. That's the amazing thing about this book. This isn't just a book. This is a divine guide that God has given to us through His Holy Spirit, through the the people that have authored it together, and and it is a guide to Him and to know how to live. And it's not going to shift and change. You know, Jesus talked about the people that a builder that builds his house upon a rock. We know that that foundation of a home, of a building needs to be solid. Otherwise, when the wind comes, when there's hurricanes, when there's earthquakes and things that come, when that foundation is stable, it's a totally different story than the man that Jesus called foolish who built his house on the sand. That when the rains came and when the winds blew, when things happened, because it's sand and not solid, it would shift. The Word of God is the solid rock from which we can build our life upon. So there are portions like today that we might read and you'll come to it and go, well, I don't believe that, or I don't believe, or you can just feel something rising up inside of you. That's okay. That's okay. Because there are sections that, that deal with our hearts, things that we don't even know are buried way inside of us. But don't just push it aside or don't just say, oh, well, that's not right anymore. You need to come to God and work it out with Him. Ask Him questions. Consider what the Word of God says and let God change your heart. Don't come to the Word with hardness and bitterness and looking for mistakes But come to the Word of God thoughtfully, prayerfully, if you really care. Come to it thoughtfully and carefully because God is good and God is merciful. God knows who you are. He knows what's in your heart. So come to Him honestly. Come to His Word honestly and open it up and read it. Don't don't come to it trying to change it, but let the Word of God come to you and begin to change how you think how you walk, and how you act, because it's through Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you and I want to pray for our people who have given to this ministry. We thank you so much. Father, I pray for the people who have been a part of this ministry and given to your word. And Lord, we understand we're not, you know, one man driving everything, but it's our family teaching your word. That's all it is. And so Lord, we pray today that they would continue to be blessed by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help them today in the name of Jesus Christ. And we all said together in Jesus name, amen.